Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. I call on an interesting person, a good friend, to join me to, for today's show. Uh, this is Tammy Verhelst. Tammy and I have worked together for, oh, I don't know, 15 years in the field of sex, love, and relationship addiction. Hey, Tammy. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you including me today. Well, you know, I uh, my experience of you is that you have been central to so many therapists working with this issue. And, you know, you've really been kind of a hub person in helping with Dr. Karn's work and my work. And I'm just wondering, how does it affect you to be dealing with problems that are so personal in nature? Like, what is that like? Do you feel embarrassed or uncomfortable talking to people about such intimate things? No, honestly, I don't. I am so passionate about people having the opportunity for solid recovery, um, not just abstinence, but really the happy, joyous, and free recovery. And so what I hear when people are sharing their stories is the pain, whether it's the person that is really struggling, it's the partner, a loved one. And so I always, um, I think, look at it through that lens of the pain and how can I help. So no matter what the story, and I've heard some really unusual things, shall we say, um, but you know, it's not about what the actual act is the specific behavior. It's really about how it's affecting them. You said, um, you know, I know that you take a lot of calls personally from people who are calling for help. And, you know, you may be the first person they talk to before they get to a therapist or, um, or, or a 12-step or program or even a professional like a um, residential program. What are, those, what are those first calls like when, you know, are people pouring their heart out to you in an intimate way, even though they don't know you? I mean, that sounds like I don't know, not something I would want to do, maybe. You know, a lot of them do. And I think it's a, a few things. First of all, I'm anonymous. They don't know me. I don't know them. And uh, so it's an opportunity to kind of test the waters with, you know, with this. And then I think that there's a lot of people, my experience, um, you know, in the field of addiction is the shame. And it's a, an opportunity to kind of test, am I really that bad? Am I beyond hope? Am I beyond help? And so if I'm going like, hey, I've heard this before, guess what? There's hope, there's help. You know, th then I think it's kind of a lifeline and an opportunity for them to find real help. 
you know, people with sexual issues are often filled with shame and embarrassment. And absolutely, there's nothing more hum- me, humiliating, I would think, than being, you know, having that kind of an issue that you have to deal with. And um, I wonder how you help them. How do you help them feel like, you know, it's okay. You could be talking about the weather. I don't care what the issue is. What I care about is helping you feel better. Even when they're telling you uncomfortable things, like how do you, how do you handle that? You reach for the pain, you said. Right. And, you know, I think you mentioned the the shame and pain of the addiction and the the person with the addiction absolutely has it i often hear it with the partner too they're they are feeling so isolated and alone and um you know i can't tell what my husband's doing no one will understand or there's other barriers and so you know i feel like you know anybody involved on this whatever side of the equation so to speak that they're on is dealing with that pain and shame What are some of the more challenging issues that you hear people calling with that maybe, you know, are you're not quite sure how to place or how to direct? I mean, there are some basic ones, you know, I have a porn problem, I have a sex problem, but do you run into some that are complicated? Like, I don't know, people are drinking or they have other things going on? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I had one this week that was really challenging. And you know what? I think the biggest thing is, is understanding that um, there are resources. And if I don't know the right, in my opinion, place for them, I absolutely have people that do. I think the hardest thing for me is knowing that some of these people, they're in pain right now, but even though I give them the resources, they are not going to pick up the phone and call. That is probably my most challenging thing to deal with that, you know, I'm not in control of this. All I can do is offer uh, a lifeline, offer the hand of help. But at the end of the day, people have to choose to make a a difference. And, um, and not everybody's able to or willing to, you know, I wonder it's a, you raise a really interesting idea, which is that really our first barrier to seeking help. It's not even a therapist's office or a 12 step meeting. Sometimes it's the biggest barrier is talking to another person about your problem, just having to spill it out in person to someone else, whether you know them or not. And I've been thinking lately about whether I know what I found a lot of help with and have been able to help people with is online environments where they feel a little bit more anonymous, a little more detached, a little bit more distant, and they can find their way to getting help on the internet and not feel so exposed. Do you think, or are you seeing new ways that people might be able to maybe cross that barrier without having to pick up the phone? I think that that's absolutely true. I also think that there's a lot of people that are in remote locations that don't have access to good qualified help. And I discern that, definitely see a difference between somebody, for example, this happens all the time, a therapist has been treating alcohol and chemical dependency for years, and then they go, hey, I'll treat sex addiction. And there's so much more involved in in addressing, and I think in an integrity way, sex addiction than alcohol and chemical dependency. You know, alcohol and chemical dependency, you just don't have to drink. You know, like you can stop the behavior and never have to drink or use drugs ever again. But but people really struggle with that. Um, I mean, oh, and I'm not minimizing that. It's not just say no, right? No, no, but but so if you have a food addiction or you have a sexual addiction, you know, I believe that we are created to eat and to have intimate relationships. And so you have got to find some level of acceptance and 
parameters that you can work and live within. But but drinking and drugging, it's absolutely you drink or you don't. You, you know, there's no gray area. You bring up a really important point, which I think anyone who's dealing with sex as an addiction or porn, you know, those kinds of issues, porn is, you know, what is sobriety? And I think you're right. You know, when you're drinking and using, it's not easy for any alcoholic or drug addict to get sober. Lord, absolutely. Lord knows it's a painful reawakening of the self and, and, and a lot of new connections, a lot of hurt and, and hard work. But the difference is that you can live a happy life and never drink again. You can live a happy life and never gamble again. Correct. But if you've got a naturally occurring function, something that is important for survival and survival of the species like procreation and and eating, yeah, we have to find a way to define what sets me into unhealthy behavior in this area and what is healthy for me. And that's harder because, you know, I, I guess I want to think following what you're saying, like if I'm an alcoholic and I see a billboard for alcohol, I might find it interesting, but I also, I, I might even drool, <laughs> but I know at the end of the day, I don't have to go home and have that drink. But if I see a billboard for cheesecake and I have natural hunger and I want to eat, the temptation to go buy that wrong food when I need to eat anyway, that makes it that much harder. It, it is difficult. And you bring up an interesting point about what is is sobriety or what is recovery. And it really depends on the person. Uh, you know, there is a lot of talk about different circles of behaviors and, you know, what is going to be problematic, you know, for that particular person, something for us, which I think goes back to why it's difficult to treat sex addiction. Um, because you do need to understand for this person, that behavior might be perfectly fine and not jeopardizing recovery for that person. However, for another person, that's, you know, that's a problematic behavior and going to ruin a relationship or, or whatever. I think it goes back to addiction is such a, you know, denial. It's like, like, this time, it's going to be different. You know, there's, there's that I I'm compelled to do it. You know, I know that every single day that I've done this behavior in the past, it's I've ended up with problems, but today, it's going to be different. And, you know, I think, I know for myself as a person in recovery, that was, you know, today, I'm going to I promise I'm not going to do whatever it was that got me in trouble. So I think that there's a portion of that that plays in all these equations as well. Well, I think what you said about the idea of having an expert in sexual issues is what makes it important because even if someone understands how to get you sober, you know, to help you avoid the bad or problem sexual behaviors and embrace healthy ones, um, that doesn't necessarily help you work through what it's like to have sexual shame or what it's like to have secrets or stories that you said you would go to your grave and never tell anyone, because those are the kinds of things that really need to be talked about in working through this. And oftentimes, uh, I think one of my colleagues, Pat Carnes, would say that sexual secrets are the ones that often cause us the most pain, and yet they're usually the ones that we are least likely to talk about. And uh, and that's a cultural issue, right? I mean, it's funny, Tammy. You know, I know that you've been in your own recovery for a while, and I, I think. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and certainly today, it's not really that difficult to say to someone, hey, you know, I have a little issue with drinking, I'm sober. It's kind of almost like, oh, how cool, like you've advanced or you've grown. And so this whole thing with drug and alcohol sobriety has become like a badge of courage, like, oh, you must have had a difficult time, but I respect that you've stopped. But with sex, how do you, do people do that? Like, hey, I've conquered my sex problem. <laughs> it seems. You don't see that in the news. 
Say more about that. What do you mean you don't see it in the news? Well, so obviously in the tabloids, et cetera, you know, there's this celebrity or that politician or whatever going off to treatment for drug or alcohol abuse, you know, and it's, it's pretty commonplace, pretty normal. And people pretty much accept that if someone is at a party and they say, no, I'm not drinking, it's okay. You don't go to a a dinner party and go, well, I'm a sex addict and, you know, I'm trying to get in recovery. That just doesn't happen. So there's isolation, there's secrecy, and then there, even if you're trying to get well from as a sex or love addict, there's shame that you don't carry into your recovery as as turned into something positive. You still have to hide in many ways the fact that you're a sex addict, whereas in this world today, talking about drugs and alcohol is much easier. I think maybe, and I want to put this out there for the show, I think that part of the reason I'm doing this as an expert in sex addiction, as someone who's written a lot of books on the subject, is because I want to destigmatize not just sexual problems, but sexuality. Uh, one of the things, and we've talked about this, Tammy, that really blows my mind is I have a mental health education. I have a master's in psychotherapy and social work. And I know that I was never trained to ask anything about sex. You know, I was trained to ask everything about your family life or your eating habits, your education or your work life or your your friends or your recreation or your exercise. And we ask every silly question and every important question when we're assessing someone with mental health or addiction problems. But no one says, how often do you masturbate? Or how is your sex life going for you? Or I wonder, it must just make it so much harder for people when even someone who's interviewing them doesn't bring up the issue. How do you talk about something that's embarrassing and uncomfortable when the therapist or the professional doesn't seem to find it important? And that would be a tough. Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of times when a therapist is, particularly if there's an alcohol or chemical issue as well, they go, oh, good, then we'll take care of that. And then then all the other problems will go away rather than going, oh, is this co-occurring? Well, I think what you're, you know, I think everyone will relate to this in some way. You know, surgeons cut, that's what they do. And so if you're um, an addictions person, you figure you can just handle all the addictions, you know, if you, but each one is actually quite unique and really requires its own focus. Hey there, I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. How do you make a referral? How do you decide? I mean, how do you think about, well, I think this person would best be with this person or that place, or is it a feeling thing? Or do you have to put thoughts together about what you know? Like, how do you decide where to send someone when they call for help? I really ask questions. I want to understand what they're dealing with, because if I ask a few questions, I typically get enough information that I can say, this feels like a good fit for this person. Sometimes I'll give them several choices so that they can make a phone call, several phone calls, I guess, and um, interview a potential therapist or inpatient treatment center and uh, uh, an IOP type of, of place, whatever they're looking for. I actually usually ask them, 
you know, what level do you think you're at? Do you think that you're at in enough pain that you'd be willing to look at an intensive outpatient program versus just going to a therapist every week? Because I always stress that getting a good foundation will help them more quickly get into a stable place and get past the initial crisis. I, I would think, speaking of that, that you get a lot of calls from spouses who maybe they're not the ones who are acting out the problem, but they have to live with the problem. Absolutely. How do they ever find peace of mind? Or, uh, I mean, I, I don't even have to ask you. I know what a long journey it is for spouses. But it's so interesting, you know, because there are people calling you saying, I know I have a problem and I want help. And then there are people who are saying, I'm married to a problem. And I wonder what the difference is in talking to someone at that level who is, I mean, they, some of them must be furious. Some of them must be loving. Some of them must be confused. I mean, how do most partners of addicts or especially sex addicts end up uh, reaching out to you? What is their, where are they at generally? It's all of the above. And often they have found that reading one of your books, like Out of the Doghouse or Sex Addiction 101, uh, they're identifying with that. They're going, that's my loved one. I think it's so painful when I hear them talk about, you know, I've been married to this person for 25 years and all of a sudden this came out and they are questioning their sanity. They're questioning this whole life that they perceived that they lived for 25 years with their, you know, with their loved one. So I think their foundation is so rocked. Um, their initial focus is typically on getting that person help, you know, and I always make sure I say, this is traumatic and you deserve support for this. And I really do believe that. And I have found in my experience that if the partner gets good support and the addict gets good help, they stand a really good chance at coming through this. There's no tucking it away on a closet shelf and going, we're just going to ignore that. But, but you know, I, I guess I have a question about that because I think most partners, well, this is what I've seen and I wonder how you deal with this is that, you know, if I'm the guy who's been sexually acting out and let's say we're married, I know that I never cheated on our taxes. I've always put my paycheck in the bank for the family. I've always made sure to pick the kids up on in school on time. So in some way, I, I want to say to you, you know, I've really been trustworthy in every area except this. Can't you just accept that? Um, but it doesn't seem to work that way. It feels like spouses lose trust globally. And it, like you said, it's sort of like, I don't believe anything you've ever said to me is true. I'm not sure if anything we're saying to each other now is true. I have no idea if the future, you know, I don't know who, you, it's almost like they're saying, if you've done the sexual stuff behind my back and you've been doing it for a while, I'm not sure I even know who you are. Well, and often it's not that compartmentalized. You know, yes, you're saying, oh, I only did it in this area, but you may have uh, used our financial resources on your acting out behavior. So, and like, and, a, like sex workers or something like that. Yes, absolutely. And so tens of thousands of dollars that could have supported our family or whatever. But, you know, there's other betrayals. You missed the family birthday party because you were, you know, off doing something. So so it, while it sounds like it should be really compartmentalized and, oh, I only did this. But I think also sex is such a, you know, it's intimacy. It's, you know, how I'm connecting with my person. So if, if that has broken, then, you know, then do I really know who you are? When I heard you say, you know, about intimacy, I thought, well, that is no case for men. 
You know, I think a woman in a committed relationship leads with her intimate relationship, the connecting, the heartfelt piece. And men do when we're with you. <laughs> but sometimes if we're at a bachelor party with a bunch of friends and we're in Vegas, we're not only not thinking about you and the intimacy or the sex are, are completely different things. You know, it, 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 you know, I've been working in, with human sexuality my entire professional career, almost 30 years. And so, you know, when I think of a guy like going to Vegas with a bunch of friends for a bachelor party and he gets a lap dance or something or, or a hand job, you know, I know that he leaves there thinking, well, that was just a lot of fun. And I really had fun with my guy, the guy, my guy friends and good for him. He's getting married. And, and that was cool. And that girl was kind of hot at the club, but he doesn't really necessarily feel it has anything to do with his marriage or his relationship at home. He'll, he knows enough to hide it. <laughs> but he doesn't really inside of him believe it would affect his family. And yet, if his spouse found out, that spouse would probably say something like, I thought you cared about me or you've ruined my life. Or And he's thinking, well, wait a minute, I just got this little thing in Vegas. And she's thinking, uh, you've broken every promise you've ever made to me. That's such a big divide, you know? Yes and no, because I think there's more women that are doing the same thing. You know, I, I think what I've seen even in the last five years that there are more women that are, that are acting with more, what I would have said previously, those kind of male characteristics where they're going like, I'm going to Vegas and the, you know, the girls that we're having our bachelorette party or whatever. Um, and it doesn't really mean anything. Um, you know, I think the whole Ashley Madison thing is fascinating when it's two married people and we both we're not going to get attached because we both are at risk with that. Well, I think you bring up two really useful issues. Um, one is um, that uh, there is a population of married people who are looking to have sex with other married people for a specific reason. And on an app like Ashley, I guess nobody's going to ask, where are the chocolates? Where are the flowers? Why didn't you call me the next day? And I, and I want to build on that by saying, as a sexologist for a long time in this field, I really do see that for the general population, younger people in particular, sex seems to be more casual. It, it, it seems to feel more like a good workout rather than something personal, meaningful, or whatever. And I don't particularly want to ever go back to the days where we're picking people up in a bar. But I also know that the apps really don't give you a sense of who that other person is. And besides, you're putting on a facade, you're telling them how sexy they are. You know, when you're hooking up with someone on an app and the world has changed so dramatically in terms of how easy it is to have casual sex, um, not just for sex addicts. For, uh, for sex addicts, it's a, it's a nightmare. Um, you know, I often say to people that these apps are like having uh, cocaine in the medicine cabinet for a cocaine addict. You're one click away from a hundred people who are looking for sex right now. And how does someone who has a problem with that turn it down? Um, the, it, it, the world has changed. Um, and yet it hasn't, you know, in the sense that fidelity is fidelity, relationships are relationships and people have expectations of their partners. But if you have a problem like this, one of the problems seems to be, how do you convince your partner? You know, I really do love you. And I've had sex with 300 people, but, but that doesn't mean I didn't love you. Uh, that's just a really bitter pill to, for someone to swallow, male or female partner. How do they hold on to those two feelings of like, you cared about me, but you did all of this stuff that you knew would hurt me? And that is really challenging and why there are intensive programs for couples, because that is not something that can be resolved in a 50-minute session 
you know, once or a week or once every two weeks. So that is really challenging. And again, why I think partners really do need support. I also think, you know, for the addict, it's like, okay, what, what is it about that that is so great that you're willing to jeopardize a relationship of intimacy and attachment in order to have pure sex? And what's the answer to that? Being be, Knowing about addiction, so I'll challenge you on that. I'll, I'll put it in different terms. You know, if you loved me, you wouldn't go out to that bar and have another drink. I mean, but but I do. And I come home drunk from work knowing that I said to you yesterday I wouldn't do this, and I agreed to you it was a bad idea. So what is it happens inside of the attic that makes them be able to be one way with one person, but then when they're in the situation, it's like that all goes out of their head? The brain is hijacked. It's the dopamine rush. So we really do have a, we really are addicted to our own neurochemistry. You know, we're kind of addicted to our own fantasies. I think that's something I want to say to every sex addict is that I don't, or anyone who's listening, I don't think sex addiction is really about the act of sex, although that occurs and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not, sometimes it's awful, but it's much more about losing yourself in fantasy. You know, Tammy, I know that you have gotten calls from people who will spend four or five hours a day looking at images or driving around a certain block looking for the right sex worker or, you know, just losing themselves in five hours on an app trying to find the right partner. And it's almost as if the searching for it is as exciting or as meaningful as the sex itself. Absolutely. And there's a lot of people that don't ever go to orgasm because it's always that building right up to that point and it would be a disappointment to have the orgasm. So if you were going to say something to, now I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, but you've worked with so many people in the very earliest stages of when they're in a panic there. And by the way, uh, folks, I want to say that um, I've worked in every part of this field. And one of the most important parts is in terms of mental health and addiction is whoever picks up the phone when the person is finally willing to make that phone call. Um, and that's why I honor you, Tammy, with this this sort of session interview because you are at a very unique position to hear people in their greatest moment of pain and hopelessness. Um, and somehow you have to be able to convert that into some hope that change is possible if they take your direction. So let me put you on the spot for a minute and say, what do you, if you were speaking to a group full of women who were involved with male sex addicts, who were really questioning their relationship, could there be change? Will it ever be better? How can I ever trust him again? You know, all that stuff. What would be a couple of things you would say to those women uh, that would give them some hope? I believe that change is possible. But the other aspect of it is if the partner is not willing to do something like draw a line in the sand, and I don't mean, you know, it has to be divorce or whatever. This is an interesting story. So there was, um, I heard about this one where, uh, a gentleman came back from a business trip and he was met at the airport by his wife. And there, one was a divorce papers and the other was a ticket to go to inpatient. You know, she drew the line in the sand. Now, I'm sure that there was, you know, ongoing and there was more. But part of it is, I think, if nothing changes, then the husband doesn't have to change. Okay. So I want to point this out. I asked you, because I'm a therapist, so I listen to stuff, right? So I asked you what would give them hope. And you preceded that with something which I think you're right about. I think what you said is don't have hope if the person isn't motivated to get help. There's no point in hoping if that person is just going to keep doing what they've been doing. And I think you also said one of the great things that will motivate them for change is you as a partner standing up and saying, I'm not going to take this anymore. Correct. 
and I always think about too, you know, a lot of these people have kids and I think, you know, and I've said to them, you know, think about how this is being modeled for your children too. You know, you want to have a great relationship, not just I'm tolerating this for the sake of the kids, but what is the image that your kids are getting from the relationship that they're seeing? And feeling. Yes. So the first thing I mentioned that you had said, you know, to partners, you've got to have somebody who's going to stand up into the problem themselves, and they may not get there until you stand up to them. But then how does any kind of partner really know that that, that the work is really being done? I mean, I, I find a lot of partners of all addicts, it's like the addict goes to therapy or treatment or meetings or whatever they do, and the partner sits at home hopeful. It's like they don't own, really don't even have a part in it. They just have to hope that it gets better and believe and trust what they're being told by someone who has already been lying to them for years. I mean, that just seems like an almost impossible situation for a partner to be in. Right, which is why I have found a lot of them are in police state mode where they're they're policing. They're, you know, I had a woman contact me that she was sending somebody um, I think she'd hired a, a, an investigator and she was sending that person to 12-step meetings to hear what the person was saying. Her message to me was, he's lying in the meetings. And I'm like, how would you know? Anyway, so so that would be a terrible position to be in. I think the solution is that the spouse, partner gets help themselves and help in the form of support. And I think that, that as they are changing and they're not feeling um, so caught up in just the addict's behavior, the whole atmosphere begins to change. I agree with you. I, I Specifically because I think partners are going through a lot just living with someone with these issues. and But then sometimes I'll have a partner say, well, he did this to me or she did this to me, so I don't need the help they do. And what I try to say to those folks is you've been living with a crazy person. And when you live with someone who's lying and cheating and acting like a crazy person, it's going to affect you. And I know many a partner who has you know, gained weight or stopped taking care of themselves or gotten so involved in this that they become emotionally unhealthy themselves. And then they don't, then they don't even – they become people they don't want to be as a partner, nagging, whining, you know, all that. I, I just think, you know, even if you go, I'm going to go for support because this is, I always mention, this is traumatic. Learning that the world that you thought you had, the life that you had with this person is not. That's a traumatic incident. That's a traumatic event. So getting support and guiding through that, then, you know, if there's personal work that you go, hey, I, I could do this, I could learn about that, you know, I want to be the highest evolved self I can be, great. But at least get some support to help, you know, get through that initial disclosure, period. Folks, this is Tammy Verhelst, who has been a hub person in the field of sex, porn, and love addiction for many years. She is probably the first person who gets the phone calls often of the person who's in a crisis. And I really wanted her to join us today. I'm so grateful. Thank you, Tammy, for joining us. Thank you, Rob. Let me ask you a couple of quick ones. If I was a spouse, a partner, let's say a wife, and I thought my husband was doing this, what should I read for myself? Is there a book for partners or spouses, or maybe there are a few? I think a lot of partners want to understand what's going on. So I think your book, Sex Addiction 101, is really helpful in getting some information. I've had a lot of partners that have read out of the doghouse. You know, they're finding that they're like, this is, you know, what what's going on. They're reading 
you know, information that you've posted, blogs and other information that it, it, you've had articles on Psychology Today on your website, they're really finding that that's resonating with them. Well, I certainly appreciate the validation of my work. Um, is there any, are there any partners books just for partners um, that you know of? Do you know a website where they might find this stuff? There's good information on Bloom for Women. It's a partner uh, site. It's about betrayal trauma. It's, it's a very good one. Um, there's a website for partner trained specialists called APSATS, A-P-S-A-T-S dot org. And there are therapists that are trained specifically to work with partners. And what about the website that you're working with now uh, on sexandrelationshiphealing.com? Do you think they would find information there? I think that there's going to be ongoing valid information on that site. That's a site that will be robust with more and more information added to it. I, I see nothing but great things um, being available on that site. Yeah, I, I want to end with a fa- with a comment that I uh, that really reflects a lot of what you said. Is that, in my opinion, is that people need to educate themselves. Like, you know, I wouldn't want to run to a therapist until I'd really read a little bit about the problem because, you know, maybe it isn't sex addiction. You know, maybe I just have have an interest that I don't feel good about, or I. I'm not having any sex at all, which I frequently hear from people. You know, I mean, there are a lot of issues that may be similar, but not exact. And understanding where you fit into the continuum of the problem, or even if it is a problem. I had a woman recently come up to me in an audience where I was speaking and she said, I think my husband is a sex addict. We've only been married a few months and I'm very worried about him. And I said, well, what makes you feel this way? And she said, well, he masturbates twice a week. And I thought, and I said, how old is he? And she said, 24. And I thought, well, even though it may, to myself, I thought, well, it may make her uncomfortable that her husband is looking at other images for sex. And that's something that they need to work out. It doesn't necessarily mean it's sex addiction, especially for a 23-year-old looking at porn occasionally. So that kind of education about, I don't like what they're doing, or I don't like what I'm doing. I think just reading some basic stuff on, on sex, intimacy, and relationships will make it a lot clearer to figure out how to begin to address the problem. Right. And some people come from a more conservative or traditional background, and they do find that to be problematic. I had one recently that was very similar to that. And I was like, I don't think that that's an issue. I think it's just, you know, a young, healthy male. Hey, Tammy, I love having you on the show. I want to do this again. Tell me if if people want to reach out to you because you know pretty much every therapist in every program in the country, how would they reach you? Do you have an email address where they could ask you a question? Absolutely. It's Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.org. Okay. And what do you do at Seeking Integrity? I am the partner... Specialist, so I'm developing not, not partner of um, sex addicts per se, but I'm working to develop more partnerships to reach more people that are struggling with addiction. So, looking at relationships from a higher level to create an environment where we can just keep helping people get recovery. So, so that that, uh, that makes me have to ask you the last question I'm going to ask, which is, you're an addict. You had a not great time of it in your addiction. It probably stole from your life in some ways. Um, why would you want to go back in and work with addicts now? I mean, I think that's a lifestyle you'd want to get away from. Is like, like, why don't you go be a lawyer or something? Why do you want to work with addicts? So when you said that, you, you go, it stole from your life. It gave me everything. 
you know, the, yes, pain, it was painful in my addiction and, um, it was a poor coping skill. Um, but my recovery has given me everything in my active addiction. I did not think I would live beyond the age of 25. I am much beyond that. I'm a contributing member of society. I'm happily married. I have just an amazing life that I could not have imagined. And it's all because of recovery. Well, that's the best hope I think you can offer to the people who are listening. Thank you, Tammy Verhulst. And uh, thank you for joining me in this podcast. I look forward to doing some more in the future. Sounds great. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.